Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. If you enjoy Southern Mysteries, you can hear more when you join me on Patreon. As an independent podcast, your support makes it possible for Southern Mysteries to continue. As a thanks for joining, there are options to hear ad-free episodes, access more than 60 episodes of the Southern Mysteries archive, and previous patron-exclusive podcasts. Plus, you can join and hear the new patron-exclusive Audacious podcast, featuring scandalous and shocking crimes in American history. Special thanks to my new generous patrons who help make the show possible. Jill from Joplin, Missouri. Mary Beth from Bon Aqua, Tennessee. Dwight from Columbus, Mississippi. Bradley from Unicoi, Tennessee. And thanks to Janet and Allie who are listening and supporting the show from mysterious locations. Your support means so much, and I hope you enjoy catching up and listening to all the stories available to you as patrons. Now, for anyone listening who hasn't checked out the Patreon and you want to hear more content you can't hear anywhere else, you can learn more, join today, and start listening at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. On December 11th, 1926, a small-town bank near Austin, Texas, was robbed at gunpoint by 21-year-old college student Rebecca Bradley. She wasn't the typical bank robber of the 1920s. She apologized politely to bank employees for locking them in a vault before she fled the scene of the crime. Rebecca was arrested soon after she robbed the bank. And suddenly, this woman known as the nice girl to her friends and colleagues was pictured in papers nationwide and labeled the flapper bandit of Texas. None of this made sense to the people who thought they knew Rebecca. She had been named Miss Modesty in high school. She was working on her master's in history at the University of Texas in Austin. What secrets drove the girl next door to armed robbery and arson. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the Texas Flapper Bandit. During the 1920s, the rise of organized crime and the Great Depression led to an increase in bank robberies nationwide. This was the era of notorious bank robbers like Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd, John Dillinger, and the lesser-known Harvey John Bailey. The West Virginian is credited with nearly 30 bank robberies between 1920 to 1932. He meticulously planned each job to ensure no one was ever seriously hurt during a heist. Bailey netted more than $1 million and was dubbed the Dean of American Bank Robbers. As sensational headlines about bank robberies turned these criminals into household names, there were three or four banks robbed every day in 1920s Texas. The Texas Bankers Association offered a $5,000 reward to anyone shooting and killing a bank robber during the commission of the crime. Bank robbery was a brazen crime that was often viewed by outsiders as a crime that didn't require great skill. Harvey John Bailey's success proved you had to have a complete plan, 
and consider every scenario to get in, get out, and get away with the money. The majority of bank robbers weren't willing or capable of that level of planning. They would walk into a bank, flash a note, maybe a gun, take the money, run, and eventually their lack of planning in the getaway and hiding the crime worked in law enforcement's favor. Enter Rebecca Bradley. Rebecca's mother worked for an insurance company and had once served as a Fort Worth, Texas deputy sheriff. In 1925, Rebecca graduated with a B.A. in history. She then set about writing her thesis on American history to receive her master's. To help cover the cost of her college tuition, she worked as the stenographer for the Texas Attorney General Dan Moody. Her co-workers described her as a pleasant young woman. They didn't know Rebecca was holding on to a lot of shame and desperation. She was short of money she needed for college tuition and money needed to make things right with the Texas State Historical Society. Rebecca was temporarily placed in charge of the society while a history professor in her department, who normally ran it, was away on vacation. The professor encouraged Rebecca to increase subscriptions for the society's magazine. He explained she could keep $1.40 of every $3 subscription as long as she collected the money. To boost those subscriptions, Rebecca wrote a form letter, then hired four stenographers to send thousands of the letters that requested donations. Rebecca invested almost $2,500 in the supplies and paying the stenographers because she was convinced she would have a big return on her investment. But only a few donations were made. Rebecca was living with her mother, Grace, who agreed to help her daughter by mortgaging her house for $1,500. Soon after, Grace lost her job. Rebecca was still $1,000 short on the debt she owed to make things right with the society. Her solution to the problem was to write a bad check to pay the debt at her local bank and then quickly rob a bank of the money she needed to deposit to cover the bad check she had written. As Harvey John Bailey would have told Rebecca, robbing banks wasn't as easy as it seemed. Rebecca's first attempted robbery was in Round Rock, just south of Austin. She visited town and posed as a reporter named Grace Lofton. She chatted up locals, explained she was researching local crops and wanted to connect with prominent farmers. As she waited near the entrance of the bank, she hoped there would come a time when there were no customers inside and only one, maybe two employees in the bank. But she underestimated how busy this bank would be and how long customers would linger to talk. Rebecca noticed a vacant house near the bank, so she shifted to plan B. She slipped away, set the house on fire, and rushed back to the bank, shouting, Fire! She was convinced employees and customers would leave the building to see what was happening outside, which would make it easy for her to sneak in and steal money. But to her surprise, they didn't move. They knew the fire department had it under control, 
and the bank employees continued to do their job. A frustrated Rebecca gave up and decided to target another bank. The next day, December 11th, 1926, Rebecca Bradley drove to Farmers National Bank in Buda, a small town south of Austin. She again pretended to be a reporter and used the alias Grace Lofton. She chatted with farmers in the bank, asked them about crops and how government policies affected their livelihood. She politely asked the bank manager for permission to use the bank's typewriter, which was just inside the teller's cage. The manager agreed, and not long after Rebecca was allowed in the area, she pulled a 32 automatic from her purse and ordered two employees into the walk-in safe. She asked the employees if they had enough air to last about 30 minutes. When they said yes, she closed the door and stole $1,000 in $5 bills, the exact amount needed to cover her bad check at the bank in Austin. The bank employees found a screwdriver they were able to use to jimmy the lock and pry the door open. They escaped just minutes after Rebecca fled in her Ford Model T coupe. The employees reported the robbery to law enforcement with a description of the bank robber, a woman between 18 to 20 years old, approximately 5 foot 2, 115 pounds, with a pretty round face and she was fashionably dressed. Thanks to witnesses who saw the woman fleeing the scene, they had her license plate number, 810-863. Rebecca drove towards Austin on back roads, where she ran into trouble when her Model T got stuck in mud. A local farmer helped her pull the car out of the mud, and she hit the road again. When she arrived in Austin, she mailed the gun and the money to her university post office box, then dropped her car off at a car wash before she returned to her mother's home. An Austin policeman patrolling the area around the car wash noticed the Model T coupe and stopped to check the license plate number. Every officer in the region was on alert to look for that model car with a license plate, 810-863. The officer waited at the car wash, and when Rebecca returned to pick up her car around 5 p.m., she was greeted by that officer and several others who promptly arrested her. When Rebecca was arrested, she was wearing the clothes she had worn earlier in the day when she walked in and robbed the bank in Buddha. A felt hat, brown coat, a plain scotch dress, and black satin slippers, smeared with mud. She was quickly dubbed by the press as the Flapper Bandit. Rebecca Bradley had committed the crime in Hayes County, so Austin police agreed to transfer her to authorities in the county seat at San Marcos. During the drive to San Marcos, authorities drove through Buda. Rebecca began to laugh and told officers that she had a lot to face and live down, but not as much as the men in that bank who let a little girl hold them up with an empty gun. Whether she knew it or not, that wasn't true. When police searched her car, they found the 32 automatic in the glove box. There was a bullet in the chamber, 
ready to be fired. Rebecca's attorney, John Coffer, arrived at San Marcos with her mother, Grace. Coffer met with a chief deputy sheriff who explained they had the money Rebecca stole from the bank, the gun she used in the commission of the crime, and his clients had confessed to police. Coffer reminded Rebecca and her mother to remain quiet and not say a word when the local sheriff was called in to meet with them. During the meeting with Sheriff Allen, Coffer realized Rebecca was so naive, it was impossible for her to understand how serious the situation was for her. She seemed surprised when the sheriff explained to her there was a bullet in the chamber when she held a gun on the bank employees. She responded by telling her attorney and mother to leave. She said she could handle everything and get out of the situation on her own. Coffer and Rebecca's mother refused to leave. Coffer met with a local justice of the peace who refused bail because he said this was a capital crime. Coffer argued the majority of the money was recovered when his client was arrested and no one was injured in the commission of the crime. But the judge didn't flinch on the request for bail. The judge did agree to one compromise, which allowed Rebecca Bradley to return to her mother's home, where she remained until a second bond hearing in Austin before Judge George Calhoun. One of the first people to arrive at the court in Austin the day of Rebecca's hearing was Otis Rogers, an attorney from Amarillo. Otis Rogers was Rebecca Bradley's secret husband. Just after Rebecca's arrest, Otis asked some reporters at a newspaper office if there was any news about that flapper bandit. A reporter recognized him as an attorney and asked if he was representing Rebecca. Otis immediately responded, No, I'm her husband. The reporter got the scoop, called Rebecca's mother, Grace, to confirm the story before it went to print, and Grace said that could not be true. The following day, Rebecca spoke with the reporter and denied Otis Rogers was her husband. Otis pushed back and released a statement to the Associated Press, which read, Rebecca Bradley is my wife. She and I were secretly married October 28, 1925, at Georgetown, Texas. She and I were students at the University of Texas at the time, and I later received my law degree. And in June 1926, went to Amarillo to start the practice of law. She did not go with me because I was just beginning my practice and was financially unable to provide her a home there. She remained in Austin to finish her work toward her master's degree. As soon as I heard of the charges against her, I came immediately to Austin to assist. Reporters did a little digging and learned Otis and Rebecca had been high school sweethearts. A marriage license produced by Otis confirmed the marriage was real. Rebecca Bradley Rogers finally acknowledged it to reporters the day she returned to court for her bond hearing, saying, I'm glad to see my husband here. Reporters noted she wore a diamond on her left finger when she walked into the court in a green frock and the same mud-stained slippers she was wearing the day she was arrested. John Coffer opened the hearing with a demand that his client be discharged. He explained to Judge Calhoun, 
before he arrived in San Marcos on the day Rebecca was arrested, he obtained a writ of habeas corpus that had been filed with the state. A writ of habeas corpus requires a custodian to present a defendant in court to determine if the person is being held lawfully. Crawford claimed Rebecca was held illegally by Sheriff Allen in San Marcos with a justice of the peace refused bond. Coffer argued that the crime was bondable under Texas law. The district attorney called Sheriff Allen to the stand to speak to the claim he held Rebecca in jail illegally. Allen recounted Rebecca's full confession to him. He said she laid out her guilt. Allen also recounted Rebecca laughing about the men who must feel silly for letting a young girl rob their bank. Those men including F.A. Jameson, were called to the stand. Jameson was one of the bank employees Rebecca locked in the vault. He explained that, yes, Rebecca was a small woman who didn't scare him when she walked into the bank. He didn't fight back when she produced the gun and ordered him into the vault because he could see her hand shaking as she was holding the gun. He feared her nervousness, worried she would accidentally fire the gun and kill him or his co-worker. Jameson did point out that through the whole ordeal, this young woman was very considerate. The farmer who had helped pull Rebecca's car out of the mud as she was headed home to Austin after the robbery testified he let Rebecca use the phone at his house to call her mother. He overheard Rebecca tell her mom she was stuck in the mud on 14th Street in Austin. He remembered that distinctly because he lectured her about lying to her mom. The defense called character witnesses, including Rebecca's Sunday school teacher and the president of the University of Texas. Everyone who testified to her character said they were shocked to hear the news of Rebecca's arrest and could not understand how such a quiet lady with a strict demeanor would do such a thing. John Coffer closed the hearing with a request that bail be set at $2,000. Judge Calhoun agreed to bail, but set it at $5,000. Austin Mayor P.W. McFadden and Charles Ramsdell, a professor of history at the University of Texas, were bondsmen for Rebecca. As Rebecca awaited trial for the armed robbery, she was charged with arson, because witnesses had positively identified her to police as the woman seen entering that vacant house in Round Rock before flames were seen coming from the home. At a preliminary hearing, John Coffer entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. The judge granted a continuance in the arson trial when John Coffer revealed Otis Rogers was unavailable as a member of the defense team because he was in hospital. With tuberculosis. Newspapers ran polls asking Texans what they would do if they were on the jury for Rebecca's arson trial. A majority of the people who responded said they would not find her guilty. By September 1927, Otis recovered to the point he was able to be carried into court on a cot. He helped John Coffer argue Rebecca's innocence. When he was called to the stand as a material witness, 
He explained Rebecca had been unbalanced since the summer of 1926. She had seen three psychologists who diagnosed her as dementia precox. In 1920s, doctors described this as a type of early dementia, which made a person unable to determine right from wrong and at times suffer from delusions. Today, it's known as schizophrenia. The prosecutor argued the only condition Rebecca Bradley suffered was the disease of being a criminal who got caught. He called six Round Rock residents who had seen a woman matching Rebecca's description enter the home that was burned down, and a storekeeper testified to selling kerosene and matches to Rebecca the day before the fire. Otis Rogers called expert witnesses to the stand to testify Rebecca was, at times, irrational and overall unbalanced. During deliberation, the jury was conflicted. They could not come to a unanimous decision. The judge was forced to declare a mistrial. Soon after, the judge overseeing Rebecca Bradley's bank robbery trial granted a motion for a change of venue because the state found it hard to find jurors. The trial started in LaGrange, Texas, on December 5, 1927. John Coffer presented the best defense possible for Rebecca. Insanity. The jury in the bank robbery trial had no problem getting to a unanimous verdict. Guilty. Rebecca Bradley was sentenced to 14 years in prison. Coffer filed an appeal and got Rebecca a new trial. At trial, most of the same testimony was heard by the jury, but one witness made a statement that changed everything. The bank employee, F.A. Jameson, changed his mind about the robbery and changed his mind about Rebecca. He testified that based on his observations of Rebecca in her previous trials and her demeanor when she was robbing the bank, he was now convinced Rebecca had no idea how serious the act of armed robbery was. This changed everything for the jury deliberation. Some members of the jury who were close to voting guilty before that testimony could not make the call at deliberation. The judge ordered the jury to continue with deliberations twice, but in the end, they were deadlocked, and the judge declared a mistrial. Otis and Rebecca knew that at any moment— the DA could move for another trial. The only word that ever came from the prosecutor's office was advice. He suggested if Rebecca's condition was real, which he had always refused to believe, it would be in her best interest to continue to seek treatment in the hope she would never commit a crime again. On September 23, 1933, all charges against Rebecca Bradley Rogers were dropped. That ruling meant Otis and Rebecca could move forward and focus on their next chapter. The day after the DA dropped the charges, news broke that the woman once known as the Flapper Bandit had given birth to her first child. A report in the Wichita Falls Times about the conclusion of the unusual case of the Flapper Bandit noted that many people believed Rebecca Rogers escaped punishment for her brazen acts. But some members of the public felt Rebecca having to endure several trials 
and the shame of her mental health struggles being shared with the world was punishment enough. The Wichita Falls Times report ended with a lesson the reporter said could be drawn from this unusual chapter in Texas crime. The biggest lesson was any woman who commits a crime should have a good lawyer for a husband. The skill and devotion of Otis Rogers saved his wife, Rebecca, from a long prison term. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. Once charges were officially dismissed against Rebecca, she and Otis moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Otis had gained notoriety for his criminal defense skills during Rebecca's trial. He opened a successful criminal defense practice in Fort Worth with Rebecca serving as his legal secretary. Rebecca and Otis continued to live a quiet life until Rebecca's death in 1950 at the age of 45. She may have been known as the Flapper Bandit in the 20s and early 30s, but her obituary never mentioned that. Perhaps they skipped that part of her story because Rebecca never turned to crime again. She lived a simple life devoted to work and family. Within a year of Rebecca's death, Otis Rogers passed away at the age of 48. His obituary praised him as a little giant of Texas courts, which made it hard to ignore the case that brought him notoriety and respect. His defense of his wife, the Flapper Bandit. You can find sources for this episode in the show notes and learn more about the show at southernmysteries.com. And remember, you can join me on Patreon to support the show and hear bonus content you can't hear anywhere else at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Another way to support the show and help more people discover it among the crazy algorithms in the podcast world is to rate and review Southern Mysteries where you're listening. I appreciate that and appreciate you for listening to Southern Mysteries. Southern Mysteries.